The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when you bring the darkest of human expression, grief, selfishness, compliance, murder, and depression, and drag it directly into the sun? Does literally casting a rosy golden glow on a tableau of cruelty make it any easier to swallow? Or is humanity made even more disturbing in direct light? Well, let's find out. Because today we are gazing right into the chilling blaze of Ari Aster's 2019 nightmare horror comedy, Midsummer, a film that has approximately 13 different title pronunciations, all of which will likely be said at some point or another by both of us throughout the following episode. Brought to you by Synchronized Grieving, Menstrual Muffins, The Roofied Sacrifice, The Insidious Dangers of Smiling Swedes, and the homicidal vengeance of a May Queen scorned. And, of course, our safe word today is metropolitan. Anything to add, Benji? Finally, there is a movie that is brave enough to say what I've been saying for years and that no one else wants to hear, and that is how fucking evil Ikea is. (laughs) The dangers of Ikea brought to you here on the Cinema of Cruelty. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space. Boy. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my God! Disappointed. Jesus. Wet. Oh hi, Mark. Oh, London. Hey. Hey, Hey, Benji. Oh, God. The only thing more depressing than this movie is hearing you say that again. Yeah. Uh, How we doing? Um, I'm a little affected, (laughs) I suppose, by this film. This film was not the most fun thing to watch of all time. There were effects and effects. To this film. Yes, gorgeous, gorgeous film. Although very fitting for a podcast on the cinema of cruelty, because while we were doing research for this film, or while I was doing research, I don't know what you do in your spare time, I came across an interview with the director of this film who specifically said that one of the strongest influences on Midsummer as a film was Arto's theater of cruelty so i saw that and i was like oh my god yeah that really tracks you know there's this uh french film from the 1990s i believe called my life in times with Art- Antoine and Artaud, which is it's just the most french goddamn film i've ever seen in my <laughs> life and there's a moment in there where this guy who is a poet he hangs out with Antoine Artaud to like get a a quote for his book of poetry because that's who this, this movie wants us to leave as the hero. And he says, Monsieur Otto, uh, it, it went really well last night at the theater, that show that you put on. And Antonin Otto is just very dour. He's like, yes, there was much applause, but I did not feel like everybody was offended. <laughs> and that really does give you an idea of like, the high watermark that theater and cinema of cruelty goes for is that if you have a theatrical experience and your audience is not 100% upset by what they saw, you're doing it wrong. In some fashion. Yeah, this, at first we had pitched this film just because 
we had some people that wanted to watch it and we're like, yeah, there seems to be a lot to annotate there. I don't think I realized going in how in line this film was with the theater of cruelty and thus the cinema of cruelty (laughs) until I was about five minutes in. Yes, sometimes, (laughs) as we have said, sometimes cruelty is about how aware a film makes you of the artifice of filmmaking and of storytelling. And then sometimes cruelty is sadism. I'd say this film is the latter category. This is a sadistic goddamn film. Yeah, I would say it's a little bit of both because there are a lot of really great filmmaking decisions happening on a production level across the board, which really makes you pay attention to the theatricality and the production in a way that not all films invite you to. So to a certain extent, there is a constant awareness of watching something theatrical or something produced just because of how beautiful this thing is produced. And then, yes, we also get the actual emotional side of cruelty in terms of it being both sadistic, but then just a lot of other uncanny emotions at the same time. Yeah, I would say that this reminded me a lot of watching a Lars von Trier film where I feel horrible while I'm watching it, but at the same time I have to begrudgingly admit, wow, this is a really well-made film. This is a beautiful way to make me feel like life isn't worth living anymore. Okay. I don't think this makes me feel quite as bad as a Lars von Trier film, but it's still like, god damn. Yeah, see, I would say there's definitely something different about Aster and uh, von Trier's sensibilities, just because, as we've discussed before, often uh, Lars von Trier stuff tends to relax me in a strange meditative way. (laughs) I have now seen both of Astor's films and neither of them relax me. So whatever uncanny sensibilities the two of them are pulling from, they're pulling from two different emotional places. Yeah. How does this, I have not seen Hereditary myself. How do you think this compares to his, uh, his previous film? So I, I will bring that up a little bit throughout as well, just because it is interesting that this is the director's sophomore film. So this is the second main film or big production film that he's done. And it's fascinating to see how already there's a sense of auteurship developing with Aster. You can tell little things that happen throughout both films where you're like, yeah, I already get a sense that I know a little bit about what this director is about. And so that's really cool that he's able to already develop this, yeah, a tourship for himself so early on. Both are brutal films, though. Both of them are films that I came away with sort of saying, this was really good on a technical level. It's astounding on an intertextual level. There's so much that is just sort of worked into the film and clues and hints. It's this great puzzle. I don't like the way either of these films make me feel, and I'm not in a hurry to watch other of those films <laughs> again and again and again. You, you watch this film, and you're like, okay, show me a Fast and the Furious movie. Let's let's get something fun going here. No, let's go back to Requiem for a Dream, right? Let's watch something fun. I want Requiem for a Dream. I want Antichrist. I... <laughs> yeah, I think the problem is this that my least favorite emotion is grief. I don't like feeling it. I don't Mm -hmm. like dealing with it. And so where things like Lars von Trier and also, yeah, Aronofsky, they deal with complex emotions, but those emotions aren't necessarily grief. So I can Mm. handle those emotions that they're listening. I don't know. I, I, I did see Mother, so there's definitely some grief to be had there. I don't think that was intentional, but I felt it while watching a Mother. 
there was another film I just didn't really ever think I needed to watch again, but for completely different reasons than the grieving reasons. We might, but, we might have to talk about that one sometime because I know that was a film we both independently saw uh, while it was out. We're, we're both like, oh, you saw that goddamn thing too? Oh, what the fuck was that? We are like, we've got a high tolerance, man. And uh, yeah, come on. Come on. All right. So I guess why we are doing this film, if uh, people cannot yet tell already, is that it is directly influenced by the theater of cruelty, and it is a cruel film. Mm -hmm. That being said, what is the best thing about this movie? I would say the best thing about this movie is that it is one of the darkest things ever, and it's done as brightly and as colorfully as you possibly can do something like this. It reminds me a lot of Ron, which is a late Kurosawa film from 1985 that's an incredibly depressing film, very nihilistic, but the vast majority of it takes place in bright daylight. All the samurai have like bright, colorful clothing on all the time. But overall, it's just a really depressing film. Kurosawa was, he was not a happy man in his late days, and that film really shows, even though it's this amazing, you know, samurai war epic. And this film is kind of in the same way, not so much the epic style, but just the fact that we are going to take something so horrendous and so dark, and we are going to do it as brightly as possible, and you have to deal with that disconnect. Yeah. Yeah, I would say the lighting definitely is excellent in this. My best is probably the set design and some of the production details. This was another film for me that just brought it on a production level. Mm -hmm. So I will talk about throughout why and the folklore that's incorporated through this as well and the way that folklore is incorporated. What's the worst thing about this movie? The fact that it made me realize that anthropologists are just voyeurs. You didn't know that already after hanging out with me for so long? <laughs> just assumed it was only you. Nope, it's all of us. It's all of us. <laughs> yeah, the worst thing about this film, other than the way that it made me feel, because that's, that's not a fair critique on right. the film, because... That's what it was yeah, going it's, for. <laughs> it's going for an emotion that Josh was not crowned the May Queen and <laughs> did not prevail throughout the entire thing, because oh. he was the true, true May Queen. He just transgressed once but we'll get into that <laughs> all right so lightning summary for this film <laughs> huh, all right let's see so uh, we've got a young girl danny who is going to experience a very tragic loss the murder suicide double combo of her sister and her parents and then her boyfriend of four years who's been thinking about breaking up with her prior to this realizes It'd be a dick move to break up with her now. And so he invites her to come along on a month and a half trip to Sweden, where another anthropologist friend of theirs has invited them to come witness a nine-day festival ritual celebrating midsummer in his hometown of rural nowhere Sweden, where they are actually a sacrificial death cult that wants to sacrifice nine bodies so that they can continue to prevail in their idyllic countryside ways of life. And this is all going to be done at the height of the summer in bright, bright daylight. And yeah, it's kind of like the Wicker Man <laughs> redux. The original really. Wicker Man, not the Nicolas Cage Wicker Man. It's a 
Kevin. Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, it's a different movie. Slightly different movie from the original. One is Nicolas Cage acting like a lunatic, and it's fun, and that makes up with the fact that it's the whole movie is kind of a poorly written critique of extreme feminism, whereas the first movie is this cool slow burn creeper that has sexy naked dancing pagans, and Christopher Lee is also there. Yes, we should probably do the Wicker Men. The Wicker Men, yeah. The the two Wicker Man movies, the Wicker Mins. <laughs> the Wicky Wicky Man. <laughs> so that's going to be our uplifting plot, is just the deterioration mm. of a relationship <laughs> spread out over two weeks in a self-sacrificing cult in Sweden. So let's get into this. We open up, as all movies should, with the tapestry. Yeah, with a great tapestry. And so... I guess also a preview on some of the things that we will be talking about both throughout this film and then towards the end, we're going to be looking at some of the art that's incorporated into this, some of the language as well, some of the Swedish folklore, and then some of the Swedish politics that led to this movie and whatnot. So all of those things. And it starts here, yeah, with the tapestry. So we get some art right out the gate. Art right out the gate, tapestry peels away and we get snow, depressing trees, more snow. It's very sad. Somewhere in a suburb, a phone is ringing. Uh, we get a message left by our main character, Danny, played by Florence Pugh. And she's concerned. Her sister, who we learn is bipolar, has sent her a very strange email saying something along the lines of, like, everything is black. I'm leaving. Mom and dad are going with me. Goodbye. You're like, shit, man. Yeah, like... What the hell is that? Danny's trying to get a hold of people or trying to get a hold of her sister. Can't. And then she calls up the worst boyfriend in cinematic history, Christian. To be fair, not the worst boyfriend in history. Yeah. He's actually fine. Yeah, you know, well, he's pretty bad. though. He's pretty bad. We'll get into this. This is actually kind of hilarious because, yeah, I was watching this with a couple of people and we all sort of sided on different things, which the director later did say that he was kind of hoping that everybody would see a little bit of themselves in all of the characters. So there wasn't necessarily meant to be the, the uber villain or anything here. But yeah, I was like, you know, what? I'm I'm more on Christian's side. This chick's a total drag. <laughs> but... Going back to this like opening shot here first uh -huh. is that please, we start please do. at the height of winter. Yeah. And so that's kind of an interesting choice in a midsummer marketed film and what will largely be shot all in daylight, all in the summer, is that we start during the winter solstice. And we do know that this is the winter solstice because when Danny gets messages from her sister, we can see the date mark in the Facebook messages, which is December 21st. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to be taking place exact opposing side of the equinox, mm. as it were. Another fun thing weirdly about these side links is that she had sent a couple of other messages prior. I guess her sister Terry had sent these messages that were just YouTube links a day and then two days before her death. And so I'm like, all right, obviously I have to freeze frame this and look up the YouTube links, which do actually lead to videos, but in a sort of confusing manner. So the first one goes to Relaxing Yellowstone River Live. And it's from the Yellowstone live feed. So it's just the shot of the river, okay. <laughs> the sounds of the river. All right. And this apparently was also there a year ago when this film was released because all, most of the comments on this Yellowstone thing were from other people who had done the same thing, <laughs> paused in midsummer and followed this link. And we're like, what does this mean? And then the other one 
was a first ever 3D VR filmed in space. One Strange Rock, and it's this astronaut who is in space and projecting his day. That one is a little bit more haunting because the stuff that he talks about when you then take it and apply it to this film, he he's just talking about how like there's no natural way for your body to tell if it's day or night in space, which is going to be fitting when we get to midsummer and the sun doesn't set so there's no way for them to tell if it's sort of day or night he's talking about the vastness of space and the isolation he's doing it in all this positive chipper way but if you're trying to then reframe these in the mindset of herb sister watching these right before her suicide then it becomes a little interesting i don't know it was a strange easter egg choice especially the yellowstone river one but there were a lot of people commenting on both videos having arrived there from midsummer. So that was kind of fun. So when she does finally call Christian, it is this awesome, like close up shot of Florence Pugh, who is really bringing it in this film. And she is weeping and calling Christian, trying to get some sort of, you know, help on what's going on. And, uh, she, she says, Oh yeah, Terry's doing it again. And Christian says, well, you let her do that. What the fuck, dude? <laughs> Just seemed like the, really the worst thing to say to someone who's, in a really tough place. Like, well, you know, you, this is really your fault if you think about it. Like, oh, thanks, buddy. Nice yeah, of you see, to say. I didn't take it quite that way. So, like, yeah, this conversation is going to be her saying, my sister is having another manic or depressive episode. We're not quite sure which one yet. It, the mm -hmm. note seems depressive, but she's going to be worried about her. And you can tell from Christian's side of things that this must happen a lot. Mm -hmm. That... He's like, this. she does this every other day, right? And his response of, you let her do this, is probably wrongfully worded. Mm -hmm. But this sentiment of, you let her stress you out and become anxious and reactionary every time she contacts you, you drop everything and you worry. And then it turns out she's fine and she cycles back through it and she does it again. This is clearly having deteriorating effects on Danny as well. And so when you are a secondary observer of someone who is dealing with a family member who is suffering from some sort of chronic mental illness, it is exhausting in its own way, right? That sort of trickles down and affects everyone. And so my take from this was this kind of quasi feeling of being fed up and a little bit feeling helpless himself where he's like, I, I can't help you in this situation and mm -hmm. you can't really help this situation. And it's easier to tell other people to distance themselves from the individuals that are draining on their lives because they don't have that. Like she's like, she's my sister. And he's like, yeah, well, she's not my sister. So I don't really feel that connection. So it's a lot easier for me to say like, you gotta step away. You Are we having a good thing. time yet, ladies and gentlemen? Well, just buckle up. But yes, that goes down. Uh, she calls up someone else, a friend. Uh, we see her take some pills that uh, close reveals to be, uh, I believe it's pronounced Adivan, which is a Adivan. Yeah, Ativan, it's an anti-anxiety yeah. med. Yes, yes, it's what it's our new sponsor because that's what I need every time I talk to you. Cinema of Cruelty, brought to you by Adivan. I'm kidding, of course. Our real sponsor is Too Much Free Time. When you need some zennials to talk about a goddamn movie for three hours, trust in Too Much Free Time. All right. And back to our regular scheduled program. <laughs> it's true, though. It's yes. true. So he's like, yeah, girl, I, 
I feel you, but at the same time, I don't feel you because your sister is a crazy bitch and she mm-hmm. goes off the rails all the time. Like, you need to chill. We meet up with Christian and his buddies hanging out, and we meet the crew. We meet Christian. We meet Mark, played by an actor Mark. with the most punchable goddamn face I've ever seen. Nothing oh against- my god, right? And also, when Danny calls Christian initially, and Mark's in the background saying, like, hi, Danny, hi, Danny, and Christian's like, Mark says hi, and she's like, hi, Mark, and I just, like, could only hear Tommy Busso. <laughs> Oh, hi, Mark. The rest of that <laughs> Mark, scene. Mark, you just had the most punchable face ever. I want to punch the face, but I want to keep my stupid comments in my pockets. So, yeah, we have an oh, hi, Mark moment. <laughs> we also meet Josh, who I really like this actor. He plays Cheaty on The Good Place. Uh, yes, this actor, uh, William Jackson Harper. He, I know he's in The Good Place, which I haven't really seen too much of. I remember seeing him on an episode of High Maintenance back when it was a web series. I really liked like uh, his performance and his look. He has this really awesome, like intense stare. And it's perfect for the role he's doing. because He's the best thing about this movie. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, on a character and actor level. Yeah. And we also meet Pele, uh, Swedish Jesus. I kept wanting to call him, but then I realized how difficult <laughs> he has that, that vibe. That's how I realized how difficult Swedish Jesus is to say over and over again. So I'm just going with you know, Swede Christ or I don't know. <laughs> Swede Christ. But we get a little backstory. We got Mark Swedish saying like Christus. Right, Mark is Mark's position is like this is an unhealthy relationship. You should break it off for the better of the two of you. Well, that's one way of saying it. Well, the way Mark's is like, dude, you need to be slamming some puss. Break it off with her, bro. Even weirder, he's like, think of all the other girls you could be impregnating, and you're like, that's the goal here, buddy. Yeah, like what the fuck? And then Pele is like, oh, but there's going to be all the beautiful Swedish women you're going to be seeing, you know. Is that the accent we're going with? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Sorry, Sweden. I mean, what accent? Also, he actually says, think of all of the Swedish women you could impregnate or be impregnating. You... And that actually is going to end up being a foreshadowing moment. Brought to you by foreshadowing. It's built in there, but at the same time, <laughs> outside of the foreshadowing context, it's it's a weird goal. Uh, yes, and also we just get a little information. I think it's revealed more in de- more detail later on, but Josh is an anthropology student, and he's working on his thesis. So is Christian. Both uh, Christian and Josh and yes. Pele are all anthropology students. Technically, Mark is too, I guess. <laughs> he's just in it for the babes. But Danny is, is in the psychology department, uh, <laughs> which is ironic. Which so many I would I would say that she is the rare example of a worse psychology student than Britta from Community. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It does seem like there are a lot of early starters in the psych departments that need to get their own shit together first before they can help other people. And that ends up uh. being what a lot of their early programming is. But yeah, this mm-hmm. this girl is not applying any positive. No therapies or psychology ideology to her daily (sighs) life well yes and uh on the note of positivity we get another uh, christian gets another call from danny and she is sobbing and weeping and then we find out some very grisly news and that is that her younger sister went very gently into that good night and did a murder suicide on herself and her parents danny's parents too by rigging car exhaust pipes, piping 
her parents' room, taping a tube to her mouth and dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. It's a total dick move. Yeah. It's like, like if you're going to take, yeah, yourself oh. out. And she takes the parents with her, like oh, a total dick move. So messed Although, up. Yeah. the way that this scene is shot. So this mm. is a great example of... A lot of slow moving one shots there, yeah. Astor's sort of developing auteurship with his cinematographer. This scene is its really haunting and gross on some levels, but in the ways that it's not uncannily horrifying, it's gorgeous. So we get these shots from the perspective of inside the car first, that the key is going to turn off and it's going to be these firemen that are responding to something. And we get these pullbacks and pullouts while the camera is sort of spinning at the same time. It's a half spinning, half tracking... <laughs> Like, half pull-out shot. Like, we're using a lot of different camera mechanics at once here. And it's going to be a little disjarring in that way to sort of orient yourself in terms of where you are positioned within the frame. And we're going to get the slow reveal that's following almost the POV of the piping mm -hmm. that Terry has hooked up from the back of the car and threading its way up the house. And so just that perspective, we get a lot of really cool perspectives from this director and it's going to slink and wind all the way up the stairs she's taken the time to set this up right both cars are running she's duct taped the double doors of her parents bedroom shut she's duct taped this hose like to her mouth and throat like she's serious yeah her parents must be very sound sleepers to not notice someone duct taping their doors shut and shoving a pipe in there, but neither here nor there. Yeah, but she was very, very careful, right? And so she also, we see, had sent this suicide note to Danny on her computer that was still open above her head with the four unread emails that mm -hmm. Danny had sent her back right after. And there's, this is truly the most haunting chilling horrific moment for me in the entire thing fair enough it's, it's just this really yeah. mundane reveal of just the discovery of death mm. and the aftermath of grief especially the music that's going to happen during mm. this too and the sound mixing because Danny calls up Christian and she's just saying no, no, no and wailing. Oh, and then yeah. these discordant violins are going to pick up with mm -hmm. her wails and they're going to carry us through this scene that doesn't have any other dialogue. Mm -hmm. It is fucked up on like a central nervous system <laughs> level. I don't know. So, yeah. Which is a, a good haunting. thing. <laughs> I realized that as I was while watching this. There were so many thoughts that popped into my head about this film, and I felt like if I were going to explain them to somebody else, I would have to then say, and that's a good thing. This movie is upsetting on a central nervous system level, and that's a good thing. This is the yeah. most terrifying thing I've ever watched, and it's a good thing. I felt like death after this movie, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Maybe, but yeah, no, I mean, it's a technically very interesting, tight film, and these are the moments where even though it's making me feel this way in the scene, I also have to respect it very deeply because mm -hmm. the sound and the camera work and the lighting, like the red flashing lights from the emergency response oh, yeah. vehicles are going to take over the primary stuff of the garage. But then we've got the snow coming in. And so we've got this cool temperature light coming in from the open garage. They're going to walk in or follow the pipes in through the back door and we'll get this backdrop of red flashing light into the cool indigo space of the interior of the house. Like, 
it's just a gorgeously shot scene, but it's making me feel so terrible. I don't know. A really great move in this is where the camera is moving onto the computer after we've seen the sister, you know, two in the mouth, then cut to the same kind of camera move now in Danny's apartment where Christian is holding her, comforting her, and Florence Pugh is just putting so much into this, like with like her, it's beyond sobbing. It's more like almost, it's almost growling how like intense her her heaving and her yelling is. Uh, She's like laying in his arms and the slow move out the window. And then we finally get our opening credits. Yeah. And you're like, that's the way to open a movie. Although she's like breaking down on this couch. And all I can notice is that there's a John Bauer painting behind her above the bed. Uh And so we just have this horrible grisly scene. And then I like perk up and I'm like, it's the John Bauer painting, like the little bear painting. And the other people I was watching this, they're like, you notice weird stuff. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, this is really important. But yeah, so the John Bauer painting that's going to be above Danny's bed, it is a painting called Poor Little Bear Mm. by Swedish painter John Bauer, who was a prominent illustrator of Swedish fairy tales. Actually, I have a collection of his paintings in my house. I don't have that one. But that one comes from a fairy tale called, sort of roughly translates into The Innocence Hiking or The Innocence Journey. And so we have this small blonde princess who's going to go on a journey and she's going to encounter a bear. And it is a poor, sad little bear. Mm. She's going to kiss it on the nose. Another foreshadowing moment because we're going to see her interact with bears later. And so we do see that she might have actually a background herself a little bit with Sweden or Swedish culture. She is familiar with these John Bauer paintings. Her family lives in Michigan. She's living in New York to go to school, but... Her family seems to have a slightly Swedish last name, lives in the Michigan area, so she might have been predestined for this all along. A quick note about her apartment that I noticed uh, in the living room at any rate. The first time I saw this movie, I noticed like, oh, there's that Ikea lamp that you see a lot of places. It's this like ceiling, hanging ceiling light, and it kind of has like a flower petal design going on. And you see it like in a lot of movies, actually, because it's a really cool light from Ikea and it's like only $50. So it's an easy thing for set dressing. And then the second time I watched this movie, I noticed like, oh, wait a minute. All of her furniture is Ikea. Yeah. Ikea was tracking this woman. They knew. They sent Pele to find the Ikea woman. No. That's how Ikea gets you, you know? It's all coming together now, all right? They hook you with their Swedish meatballs, and then they got their, you know, ergonomically designed hooks into you. Before you know it, death cult. Yeah. Those are the only steps. But yes, sometime later... Uh, Danny is sleeping. Christian comes in to check on her, and it's like the middle of the day. He's like, uh, yeah, I was going to go to this party for a little bit. I'll come too. Okay, great. And there is a moment when they get to this party that I really like from a sound design point of view, where as Danny is standing there, numb to the world, the sound design, everything is muffled. It's all just... And having been to a few parties that I did not want to be at when I was feeling like complete shit... That's a very accurate representation of what that feels like. So props. That's what I hear every time you talk. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that because I know that's going to go over your head anyway. When she does begin to pay attention, she catches conversation of plans that Christian really was should have clued her in on, where the guys all say, oh yeah, yeah, Pele here, he's invited us to go with uh, hang out with him in, in Sweden for a month. 
or so. Yeah, on a pro-Christian side, though, these two don't <laughs> live together. They still refer to date nights as, do you want to hang out later? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure. Like I, It was weird to try to get a sense of how serious these two were, because we do learn later that they've been together for about four years. Yeah. But that's also a college four years. So This is definitely a relationship that should have ended six months ago. Yeah. It's just, they are both incredibly toxic people for each other, because we're going to continuously see them interact. And <laughs> Neither of them really want to deal with the conflict. And so Christian will just be like, I mean, I told you. And then maybe I should just go. You know, and Dave's like, no, 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 I'm not mad. I don't need an apology. I just want to talk. You know, she goes very quickly into this, like, passive aggressive, like, shutdown Mm -hmm. phase. Um, She's not vocalizing her needs either. And so it's hard to know to what extent he needs to be responsible for meeting her needs since she doesn't seem to ever vocalize them. And so there's this understanding of expectation, but he might not know what those expectations are. Again, should have ended six months ago. And then we cut to uh, Pele and Christian's place where they are just chatting about the upcoming trip. It's going to be a good time. Mark wants to know about all the meatball sex clubs as he calls it in stockholm but sadly they're not going to be anywhere near stockholm they're going immediately north and like ah mark is just disappointed in this already he really wanted to eat some meatballs while he watched women get naked but you know what mark you could do that any night of the week you don't have to go to sweden for that you just make yourself some meatballs and you find somebody who's willing to strip for you or pay them to Mark, you gotta be the meatball sex club that you want to see in the world. Yeah, That's the be key. the change, Mark. Yeah, be the meatball. Uh, Christian pulls. Okay, I, I, this is one thing. Like, I don't know how the hell you can defend this. This is the douchiest move I've ever seen in my life. Where he tells them, "Oh yeah, by the way, guys. Uh, well, Danny's coming up. Uh, I invited her uh, to come to Sweden, and I told her that it was all your idea too. Uh, but she's not gonna come." the fuck man <laughs> i was like are you gonna kill her like why are you so sure that she's not coming because he kept sort of saying no no she's not gonna come though but this also just indicates that this is just who christian is as a person that he didn't tell danny he was going to sweden and then he didn't tell his friends that he invited danny to sweden like mark just doesn't mark does or not mark christian does christian you know then she comes up And the friends are all super awkward because they just learned two minutes prior that she's coming with them to Sweden and they have to act like it was their idea. And soon most people exit the frame and it's just her and Pele. Pele and her have a conversation and Pele explains what they're all doing, that they're going to be going up to his homeland in northeastern Sweden for a midsummer festival. And it'll probably seem a little bit silly to them, is how he describes it, because they make special outfits for the occasion, they get very traditional, they practice all the folk customs, and he says it's it's a little like the theater. So there's we've got a bit like the theater, you know, cruel theatrical performance happening with this film, and we're going to get a cruel theatrical performance within the film as well. So just worlds upon worlds, theaters upon theaters. This is also where we get the the very telling line from Danny, where she says, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm a psychology student," and then she says, "That's how you know I'm nuts." Like, huh? The verbiage you're using there indicates you're not a good psych student, Danny. Or a tongue-in-cheek one. Yeah, whatever. What are you going to do? There's a lovely transition where... So good. Pele, he says, like, I, I'm just so glad you're coming along. I mean, after everything you've been through. And 
you know, reminds her of the tragedy that she's had. And this is kind of triggering to Danny. She begins to sob, runs off to the bathroom. And we have this awesome match cut where she runs into the bathroom and suddenly she's in the, the airplane bathroom. It's just a very awesome transition to let us know this, the trip is happening. And it really should not be happening because Danny is sobbing here, too. Yeah, and it is a very clean airplane lavatory. Yeah, very big, very European as well. It looks like they might be taking some sort of Scandinavian airline or something. Plane ride ends, they get into their car, they have a four-hour ride ahead of them. There's an awesome, awesome haunting shot of the car as it's driving up to this place where we have, I assume, a drone shot or a helicopter shot, something like that. The camera is over the car and slowly moves over the car. Camera pans down and looks or tilts down to look at the car from overhead and then keeps tilting so that suddenly the world or slowly the world begins literally turn upside down as we look at this. And then it just flips again and so disorienting as we drive past. It just follows around on the bottom of the car. So once it flips the world upside down, we are going to get the upside down front bumper POV shot. So this is another yeah moment where we're getting some really cool POVs that we don't get in a lot of films. Because they're like, well, why don't we see the road, but see it from the front bumper's perspective? And let's see it upside down, because the world is sort of turning upside down for them. And yeah, it goes from almost a drone to like an affixed steady cam shot beneath mm. the car, because it follows with the car. So I don't know if they matched it at some point you and can do it's that. not a full tracking shot or if they actually found a way to dock the drone so that it became steady i could see it as like have a, a swing match cuts where you just pan the camera really fast and the motion blur that you normally get from 24 frames a second filmmaking is enough to hide the cut mm-hmm. and then they just cut straight to a front-mounted camera on the car that itself was swinging to the, its new perspective of the road so, yeah, I could see that. And happen. we're going to go underneath a sign for the region that they are going into. And that sign I'm going to talk about later. So I'm going to put a pin in that sign. I have no doubt that you will have things Big to say about that sign. sign. They arrive to a, a nice remote field, a kind of rolling hill thing going on, nice trees. They uh, Pele meets his brother. Uh, we meet some friends of his that have come from London to be with them and other members of the community who are coming back. And they're like, oh, oh, you're here. Great. Do drugs with us. Yeah, it's quite a welcome. There's a bit here that, again, really bugs me. And it's another thing that Christian does that pisses me off, where Danny, who's still like kind of, you know, a little rattled by life in general, just says, like, um, yeah, I'll, I'm going to hold off on that. I'll, I just want to, you know, find my feet and chill out. And Christian's like, oh, OK, cool. Well, I'll wait, too. Like, no, 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 no. She didn't ask you to not do drugs, buddy. And if anything, you just got yourself a free trip host. So don't ruin that good thing. But instead, he kind of guilts her into doing the drugs with them in an odd way. I feel like Mark, there was more of a social pressure that guilted Mm -hmm. her in. Because I sort of thought that uh, Christian's gesture of like, okay, well, then I'll abstain and stay sober Mm -hmm. with you is kind of a nice one that he offered. Because she could have been like, nah, I'm chill, you can do the drugs. But she's like, okay, cool, we'll wait, you know. And she didn't see any problem. Neither of them saw any problem with, okay, well, we'll just take the drugs later once she's feeling more chill, just so she doesn't have to trip alone later. So it seemed like he was trying to me in this instance. 
Not and then hard, Mark's though. like, no, but we all have to trip at the same time. It's like, do you, Mark? Do you? <laughs> Cut to Danny having a bad... Danny, she's having a bad trip. She's fighting the high. You don't fight the high. Just You, you got to roll with the high. There's a moment there where Mark is freaking out, and he's like, what time is it? It's, it's 9 p.m. But the sky is blue. I don't like that. That doesn't make sense. I need to lay it down. Christian, lay down with me. Yeah. I was like, stop harshing everybody's buzz, Mark. And there, there's a thing Pele mentions here where he says it's the midnight sun. And is this a thing that happens in Sweden in the summer? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. So it's something that happens above any particular latitude line in the summer. So if you get high enough north, the sun is not going to set. This is actually the concept of 30 days of night in Barrow, Alaska. So in the winter, you get the absolute opposite, where the sun does not rise for about 37 days. And then in the summer, it just doesn't go down for about a month and a half. Mm. The interesting thing about experiencing that, there's this idea that people at that latitude height would get very depressed in the winter because they're like, you need those sun rays for the serotonin and whatnot. And I mean, that's also kind of fair and good. But mm. I actually found when I was living in Finland, because where I was in Olu also had that happen. There was about a month that the sun did not come up in winter. I remember that I was out walking once in January. Was The light was starting to come back a little bit. And January 30th was a day that lasted about 22 minutes. I like went out for a walk to watch the sun <laughs> try to rise a little bit, and then I went back down. But then in the summer... It was actually when I got really irritable and seasonally affected because the sun would be up all night long and you would feel like it was maybe a summertime 6 p.m., 7 p.m. And then you'd realize, oh, shit, like it's actually four in the morning and I have not slept at all. I have to go to class. I have to be up in two hours to get to work (laughs) or to get to class. And that would just keep perpetually happening. It's very hard to sleep. This is also what the movie Insomnia is about mm-hmm. in terms of the detective who's up trying to solve a case in Alaska and he's not sleeping because the sun is not going down. And so it does have this weird psychological fuckery. Like if you want to talk about gaslighting, the sun will gaslight you like nobody's <laughs> business. Because <laughs> you're like, my circadian rhythms are all off. Like I feel like I, mm. I should be awake right now, but I haven't slept in three days. And so... Yeah, the shit can get real when uh, the sun just does not go down. And so perhaps, yeah, we could find this psychosis angle here somehow linked to the sun of maybe they're just not getting enough sleep. Wild. So yeah, she has this really bad trip because you shouldn't shroom while you're super freaked out already. Typically, and depressed, no, but... it's not a good idea. Should be a happy thing. It's not a happy thing. It's it's unfortunate when it's not. And they collect her and bring her, them all, to the, to the community. To the creepiest, happiest place on earth. Yes, with the best architecture. Holy <laughs> shit. Oh my god. So their entrance to this community is just going to be this wooden cutout of a mini-spoked sun. So this is also where we get the introduction of the runes. So there's lots of runes, Mm -hmm. mostly from the elder Futhark throughout, but some of the younger as well, they mix a little bit of stuff. And walking through the sun, for those who know their runes, they have the rune that symbolizes tradition, and it is turned upside down and incorporated into this sun entryway. So they are walking through an upside down tradition space. 
There's a, lo a hilarious moment to me that's very subtle, but when they are meeting uh, Odd, who is, I believe, Pele's father and kind of one of the elders of the village, they say like, wow, we love the outfits. And they all wear these long white, like almost dress robes. And he's like, oh, yes, you like it. And he does a quick little funny dance. Then he's like, yes, it uh, was because the earth, you know, is uh, hermaphra. Um, it is of both. It, uh, we, of both. So we, we use styles of both. And Josh, as if to humble brag, you know, his knowledge is like, oh, yeah, this this rather remote tribe does the exact same thing. And you see, I oh, just look at him for a moment. And he's like, uh -huh, yeah. And like the look it gives him is something like, yeah, yeah, you're going to die first. No, this is a great anthropologist build moment. Yeah. Like Josh is so excited because he's recognizing certain cultural patterns. I was like, I get you, Josh. Yeah. I get you. But at the same time, the way he says it, it's just trivializing this aspect of Odd's life. So you, I totally get like his look at him like, you, God damn it. Oh. <laughs> it's like, sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to kill but, you first, uh, Yeah, Josh is specifically already indicated that he is doing his dissertation on midsummer traditions mm. across Europe. Been, and so he's really excited to be here to witness this midsummer. He's ritual. been very clear on that. That needs to be said. He's been very clear. He is doing his thesis on midsummer traditions. So just, that's a thing. We get uh, an opening ceremony speech by another village elder where everyone has a little drink and we are told this is a special nine day festival that happens once every 90 years. So kind of a big deal. It's something you're only going to see once in your life unless you live past the age of 90, which is a little unlikely in this village. We'll get to that. So we get this sense, and we're going to get this throughout, that rituals in nines or the number nine in ritual fashion is going to be very important to this community. So this is something that happens every 90 years. It is a festival that takes place over the course of nine days. We're also later going to get this idea that they split the ages of their community into systems of nines. And this is also a very important number within Norse mythology as well. The major example of this is that Odin hung upside down in the tree of life Yggdrasil for nine days to learn the secrets of the universe. And so nine is a very sacred number. Mm. Did he? He did. Yeah. Oh. That's how you do it. Nice. And at some point, he's going to drink from a well and sacrifice an eye, but... Well, that's, that's what you got to do. Story for a different time. I learned about the eye thing from watching Gargoyles as a kid. Really? Y yeah, because Odin <laughs> shows up. you know. <laughs> shows up there. Uh, yes, lots of shouting. Uh, this is also where we meet uh, Maya in this scene, the redhead. Yes. You got a theory on Maya? Because I got a theory on Maya. Okay, what's your theory on Maya? This is Christian's long-lost sister. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Go on. That's that's all I'm saying for right now. We'll 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 do. We'll, they'll become more obvious later on, I think, as we go along. But uh, the kids start to play skim the fool, where they're all holding hands and running around together. And Christian's long lost sister Maya kicks him, and he's like, "Hey, can I join in on that?" And Pele has a great line: "You're an American. Just go jam yourself in there." Right? That's so good. <laughs> ah, bring in the commentary. <laughs> nice, Bailey. And then they're going to convene to eat some food. As these shots culminate and you have this bright gold painted silhouette sun in the background as they're gathering on this table, this cut picnic table where they're all symmetrically sitting down 
in their pristine white robes as the golden temperature sunlight is shining beyond them or mm-hmm. down on them. I'm like, this movie is clearly like Wes Anderson meets like Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain. I can like, see that. There's such strong vibes of like, we've got Wes Anderson's like symmetry mm-hmm. and his temperature palette. But incorporating just this wacky, crazy, psychedelic landscape of architectural construction. We just need, you know, Bill Murray awkwardly looking right down the barrel of the camera combined with someone shitting gold. Yes, that is what this movie was missing. Yes, what is definitely not missing is a disfigured person painting somewhere. On a cloud. I guess the cloud doesn't come until later. There's just this odd break cutaway shot of... Something that has no geographical connection to the action at hand of someone with a very disfigured face smearing paints on pages of a book. And it it becomes obvious later on, like, what that is. But, like, in the moment, you're like, what? What is happening? Who is this? Where are they? But then you're not, you're not told. And, um, you know, a little suspense building for you right there. That's best. That's how it goes. They, they walk around a little bit more. We get to see some super old runes. And Josh is like, oh, oh, is that language uh, this style or this style? And Pella's like, no, man, it's it's that other style that you don't know about. And he's like, oh, I don't know about a thing. I'm going to write this yeah, down. That was very close. I mean, he guessed it was the younger Futhark. And he's like, no, actually, it's the elder one. Those are... You plebe. Corresponding. <laughs> we get some news that Connie and Simon are engaged. Uh, this is like a horror story for people in a bad relationship or in a relationship you don't want to be in, and you hear another couple talk about how they're engaged. Like, oh God, no, no, don't talk about that. Christian points over and's like, hey, what's that? Uh, what's that yellow building over there? I'm probably gonna die in. Like, oh, that's a sacred temple. It's a, uh, you know, very special, very special place. And then they they go over and they check out the sacred tapestry of foreshadowing. Yes, the sacred tapestry of foreshadowing. <laughs> so. The buildings, let's get on these, this architectural front. Oh, yeah. There are some really gorgeous, yeah, wood barn constructions. And inside of where they're going to be sleeping, there's just these bunks kind of all around this wide open two-story space. And there are paintings on every single surface inside. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a combination of styles here that are happening with this art and we'll we'll kind of put a pin in the art that's happening here overall. But this is also based off of some traditional types of Swedish folk art mm-hmm. that you can find in the barns in this region. But yeah, they're going to be very detailed. And if you pause on the different things and you know where the film is going, all of these visuals do overlap or correspond with different things that we learn mm. throughout the movie. Paley also explains that in his culture, age 1 to 18, you're a child, 18 to 36, you're a pilgrim, uh, 36 to 54, you're like a worker, an elder, and 54 to 72, you are a wise one and a giver of knowledge to the village. And Danny says, well, what happens after 72? And Paley just kind of makes this like choppy motion in his neck and like, Bleh! and they laugh and no one stops to say, no, seriously, what happens after 72? Which would have saved them a lot of trouble had they kind of had him clarify that. I mean, people would have been saved a lot of trouble in this movie if they had just asked people, okay, can you please explain what you mean by that? Well, I, in some way they do. Uh, well, I guess they don't necessarily ask the what happens at 72, but we do cut to Pele being all excited that tomorrow is the Atestupa ritual. 
And Josh is excited, too, because yeah. Josh knows what this means, because he's a good anthropologist. Which the fact that Josh is excited about this makes something that happens later on a little confusing to me, but we'll get into that shortly. So they do ask, what is this Atestupa yeah. thing? And it's like, oh, it's... they just smile at them. Oh, like, we don't want to ruin the surprise. It's hard to explain, you know. It's it's this complicated thing, you know. It's impossible to explain how they just jump off the cliff. I, I couldn't know. It's just like, how do you put that into words? It's not possible. Although it was fun because I had a similar experience watching this with the other people because they say that term. And I'm not as good of an anthropologist as Josh, but I do know this term as well. And so I'm sitting there going like, oh, that's where they're going with it. And everybody else is like, well, where are they going with it? I'm like, do you want me to tell you or do you want me to be Josh right now and just smile and be like, you'll see? Uh, yeah. Well, the the feast happens. The feast happens in a table that is also carved into the rune for tradition. Mm, very That's n- why they're and it's it, all wonky. Yeah. It's more of that awesome symmetrical action happening. They're standing and they're wondering like, well, when do we sit down? And Pele just says, well, we sit down when it's the right time. And eventually two elders of the village come over in blue robes and sit at the head of the table, stand at the head of the table first and wait for a little bit. And then finally they sit down and everyone else sits down and then no one moves. And then eventually the two elders in blue, they pick up their eating utensils and then everyone else in this awesome wave of motion begin to pick up their knives and forks and get ready to eat. And it's like the choreography and the, the movement of the camera there is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it's bringing it. And then we find out what Atestupa means. Yes. Well, another uh, interesting thing that happens at this feast scene, before they get up to go to the cliff, the two elders stand up and they begin to chant. And this re- reminded me of how I've often heard that Tolkien borrowed a lot from the languages of this region of the world for his, you know, made up languages, because the way they're talking it reminded me of like the black speech from the Lord of the Rings, you know, Asnaz Kurta, Asnaz Gimbatu, Asnaz Krimbatu. The I don't know if it was the way that they were talking or the tones that they were using, but something sounded very similar to me there. Okay, so the language in this, there are moments that are spoken in English. Most of the film is spoken in English. Mm-hmm. There are also um, moments of dialogue in Swedish that are deliberately not subtitled in the film. And then there are moments that are in a made-up language by the filmmaker. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, the production crew. And they call it affect language um, Uh. with a K instead of a C. And it is a mixture of, yeah, sort of guttural runic, vocalized runic sounds and Swedish and a couple of other little things that they just kind of piece together. Okay. All so, right. Yeah, well, that's why it doesn't sound quite like Swedish. It's there not. we go. Sounds more like some good old So it's cool speech. that you picked up on that. Oh, look at you having to compliment me. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, it didn't feel good. <laughs> so our two elders in blue, they decide, okay, time to go. They get into some chairs. The chairs are picked up by other people and they are taken away. Pele says, okay, time to get going here. We gotta get to the thing. The elders are taken to the top of a cliff. Their hands are slit. They put their blood on another stone that has some runes on it, too. Are there any special runes on this blood stone they're wiping their hands on? There are some special runes. You don't say! What are the odds? Oh, you get to explain something. Well, okay. So, another thing Uh, that uh, is gonna be cool with runes, there's like a lot of stuff with runes (laughs) throughout this. I would imagine. 
each person, and this is where like shit gets really detailed and crazy, where you're like, wow. So another Ariaster thing seems to be, and because he does this with heredity too, is just like pack in all of these little folk elements into the entire tapestry of his world that you can kind of engage with if you want to. Every single person that is wearing one of the white robes that they've made for this occasion have a specific rune somewhere on that clothing. And each rune is, or runes, sometimes there's a couple of them. And that combination is individual to that character. And this is with everybody. And apparently they had this big chart that kept track of which character got which runes. And those runes sort of said something or helped flush out the character a little bit. Danny later, when she's given the white dress to wear, is going to have this one particular rune on her. And then Christian later, when he's given robes, is going to have a particular rune on him. Her rune is the rune that's sort of associated with riding or journey or road. These are all kind of different associations with this particular rune. His is going to be, because he's wearing like the, the tier one, and so it's masculinity and whatnot. These are the two runes here that are going to be side by side on this stone that they put the blood on. So it's Danny's rune and Christian's rune that are getting uh. touched. And they're getting touched by the two elders that have just slit their hands and put their blood. And we are going to learn that this is a reincarnation-based society, or they believe in reincarnation. So there's some interesting interpretation here, perhaps, that they're kind of giving their life to the next generation, like kind of almost inviting them into the community in this way, or they're marking them for further sacrifice, right? It's kind of ambiguous, but these two seem to have been specifically foreshadowed here on this rock. And then these two elderly people are just going to nosedive off the cliff. Well, one of them properly dives off the cliff. The woman does, and she she dives and just does a belly flop on the rock, bounces, and the, God, the gore in this movie, I should have said that was the best thing, because the gore in this movie is fantastic in how grisly and and gloriously detailed it is. She bounces, Danny, like, is shocked by what she's seen, and in slow motion, we see this woman's body bounce off the rock, and her skull is caved in, and her body just smushed. Mm-hmm. Awesome effect shot, awesome work there, and just does exactly what it sh- what it's trying to do, which is to shock you. Then the old man jumps. The old man, he, he doesn't commit to this, because he just jumps off foot first. Yeah, he kind of failed. Yeah, and so, so everybody stop, because it's hammer time. <laughs> Well, the thing that becomes interesting is that he's going to start making these sounds, these Uh, sort of death sounds, and And the rest of the community is going to join him Mm -hmm. in this wailing, gurgling, screaming. And this is both a folk practice custom in terms of the death wail, so this communal type of grieving, Mm -hmm. but we sort of get the sense also that this is taking it a bit beyond to almost indicate that this community shares pain, that they experience things with Mm. each other and express that collectively. Which I had some mixed feelings on that practice, just based on personal experience. And I'm sure that what I've gone through is not the same thing as like what they're trying to do here. But there are moments where I felt like this is less sharing the pain and more just trying to diminish what is going on. 
because there are times like later on where Danny is freaking out and these other women are with her and they just began screaming at the same volume as her. On one hand, you can say this is them sharing her pain. But on the other hand, you can just say this is them trying to outshout her and mask the problem, because while you're sharing the pain, you're not solving the problem. Well, there's not solving the problem, but there is a certain function that grieving rituals serve mm-hmm. as an outlet. And so it depends on how you understand a grief ritual as to whether or not it's going to help you process and cope. But if it yeah. is part of your culture, that the understanding is that these other women are wailing with me as a form of support. And so that this person doesn't have to feel awkward because they're crying alone in a room of silent people, Mm -hmm. right? It's a certain type of, yeah, tonal embrace. And so if you are assuming or knowing that that's the intent of the people around you, then it feels a lot more genuine, Mm -hmm and embracing than if you're like, why are these other people just yelling at me? Right. (laughs) I guess that maybe that's what I was feeling there because if it's something foreign to you, it's just like, what are you doing? You're not helping me. You're just screaming at me too. But if you're from that culture, then you're like, oh, thank you. Yes, you're taking this with me. Okay, good. Good deal. So yeah, just cultural perspectives. Because yeah, I found that scene actually to be very beautiful in this weird Mm -hmm. communal way. It was this culmination of of what I see as the movie's gaslighting, but... We'll, we'll break down our variant forms of what we see as who the gaslighter is in all of this at the end. So at any rate, the old man was too legit to quit, so it is hammer time, and they beat his skull in with a hammer. Yeah. Four times, I feel like they got on the first try, but, you know, you, you gotta make sure you go all the you way with that. You gotta double tap, right? We've yeah. learned this from all the movies. So even in rural Sweden, they know to double tap. Double, triple, quadruple tap, whatever you have to do. Everyone else is, all the visitors obviously are horrified by all of this. We have a very faint line from Pele where he just says, Oh, I'm sorry, I should have told you about this. <laughs> you think? Should have given you the heads up. I do like the different reactions of the different groups of people, though. So you've got the natives that are just placidly looking up towards the cliff at this moment of celebration of life and death. And then you've got these two British citizens that are freaking out Mm -hmm. verbally, like sort of yelling at the next guy now that they know what's happening. Like, no, don't jump. Like, you don't have to do this. Right. Trying to dissuade him from his suicide. And then the Americans are just looking crazy shocked. Like, they're not really sure what they're supposed to do. But they're not trying to dissuade him one way or the other. They're just kind of standing there like. Yeah, so this took a turn. Interesting, yeah. And even Josh is shocked, which is what I was saying earlier that kind of confused me because he seems to know what's going to happen, but he's still really scared by by when it really does happen. And maybe that's just, you know, oh my God, now they see that it's real. It, it's just so horrific. Or maybe he's like, I just thought this is a ceremony where they then agree to go live in a home. I don't, What is going on? Okay, so I think I do know what's going on. All right. And it has to do with the practice of antistupa in general. And this is that it is a legendary folklore and symbolic ritual practice. Mm-hmm. It's not a real thing. So you don't I'm say. assuming that Josh assumed that they were going to perform uh-huh. an antistupa without actually doing one. Yeah, okay. Uh, I figured it was something like that. 
Because, <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar with this term as an anthropologist, and what I am familiar with this term as uh, is as a legendary thing that has no historical record of ever actually taking place <laughs> okay. as a historical practice. Yeah. But there are legends about it. Mm-hmm. And where this legend most likely began is in a 13th century Icelandic saga. Uh, I think it's the Gotrik saga. And in that, there are these two miserly little old people that do not want to share their wealth. Like, they they would rather die than see their wealth later be used on hospitality or something of this nature. Yeah, it's a... It's a don't piss on hospitality situation, but they piss all over that hospitality. They cliff dive off of that hospitality. So it's a dark comedy story within this saga. And the this is the word that the saga attributes to this moment. First time that scholars can find this word ever being used in Nordic language. And after that, different cliffs started getting named sort of antistupa off of this this literary reference and then the legends developed that this is where practices of scenicide kind of happened um so it's a folklore tradition within scandinavia but it is not a historical practice as far as any historians can actually tell and so i'm assuming that josh just thought that they were gonna have a a fun little performance of cliff diving and was not expecting these (laughs) senior citizens to actually just face dive into the pavement to the jagged rocks below. Yeah. So he's like, shit, this is really a thing. Well, either way, it's a fascinating thing to write a thesis on. And Josh believes this. And you know who else thinks this is a good thesis? Christian. Yeah. And so we have the battle of the theses. Theses? Theses? Sort Because, yeah, Christian's going to come into their little bunk room and tell Josh, like, I think I'm going to do my thesis on this community. And Josh is like, no, nah, man, I'm doing my thesis on this. And they have a little fight about it. And I think the movie is, once again, trying to show us that, like, Christian taking the lazy way <laughs> out <laughs> again. But at the same time, so on a counterpoint, I feel like this is me just, like, defending Christian across the board. I don't think Christian's a great character. I just don't think he's a villain. But... To be fair, if Josh is writing his dissertation on midsummer traditions across Europe and Christian's writing a thesis on an ethnographic in-depth look at a rural community in northern Sweden, Mm -hmm. those are two very different dissertations. That's totally legit. That is fine. All right. That, that they could have talked that out a little bit more. I'm not sure that the movie realized that it was fine. Like, I think yeah. they were trying to make it look like Christian was stealing his dissertation. I was like, but step back for a moment. He's actually not. Yeah. It's... Also, I didn't know that thesis subjects were a thing that you had to call dibs on. I don't really understand that world very well. Also true. And then also, though, the, so the problem with Christian's, like, declaration that this is going to be his dissertation is not so much that it slightly overlaps with what Josh is doing. It's that if he's going to do an in-depth ethnographic look at this community, he's going to have to stay with them for a lot longer than like two weeks. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) he's really going to have to like set that up. He really should have set that up with the community. He should really set that up with his dissertation committee and like make sure he gets an okay on that. Like there's, there are different things bureaucracy-wise and logistics-wise that are an issue here more so than, like, they might overlap on the midsummer tradition angle. Having said that, 
uh, nighttime comes, or well, something like nighttime comes along, Danny asks for a sleeping pill, which she really should not take because they give her very bad dreams, and she has a very scary nightmare of everyone hopping into a car and leaving without her, because Danny definitely wants to leave, even though Pele is kind of convinced her not to leave. It's that moment where everyone, like, when you're watching a movie like this, I think a lot of people would say, why the hell didn't they go? Why didn't they get the hell out of this place of of the the, the, the suicide cliff jumpers? That's scary, but who knows if you're in the same position and everyone else around you is like, no, it's totally cool. It, it's all good. We're all happy well, here. The British people immediately try to leave. Yeah. It doesn't fare any better for them. No, so it doesn't. So, like, it's not like that would have helped. This is a, something I was thinking about because... You know, Paley's still like, oh, I should Paley says after the cliff jump, oh, I should have told you I'm sorry. And I thought, okay, if we know that like Paley's long term goal is he needs outsiders here because that's important to their sacrifice later on. But if he wants them to stay, you should take a course of action that is not going to make them want to run away, you know, ease them into it. But then I thought, okay, well, maybe Paley just knows that there is no escape for these people. Once they're there, there's no, you know, running off or getting out. They have all modes of transportation are under the commune's control. So I guess Paley just knows, like, no, I can scare these people as much as I want. They're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, it's it's the little insidious builds of, well, this is this is just another rung on our cultural ladder that you're just going to have to slowly climb and acclimate <laughs> to. <laughs> Before we start killing other people. Uh, but at any rate, that all happens. Christian's long-lost sister Maya, she plants a love rune underneath his bed, which Josh notices. The next day, ashes of the elders are thrown at this old tree. Yeah, the ancestral tree. Yes, uh, Josh is told that his thesis is okay. And here's another question I had, because again, I don't know the world of thesis, theses or dissertations, what have you. <laughs> One point when Josh is talking to Pele about it, Pele says, uh, no, you can't name people in it, or you can't say where this is all taking place. And he says, oh, then I'll just, I'll use anonymous names, or I'll use aliases, and I won't say where it is. And Pele says, well, then you can't get it peer-reviewed. And then later on, when Pele says, I talked to the elders, they're cool with it, but you have to use anonymous names, you can't say where it is, and Josh is excited about it. <laughs> I was a little confused. So, can it be peer-reviewed then, or does it not matter that it can't be peer-reviewed? I mean, absolutely. So that was a weird statement to me as well. I don't know where they're getting this idea that if you use aliases, it can't be peer reviewed. Okay, because... so it, it could be. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it absolutely could be. Okay. Ethnographic work actually often uses aliases. You just need to note somewhere, generally in the footnotes or like with an asterisk, right? Like that you're using an alias mm -hmm. for these people. What anthropologists are interested in are the customs, the practices, the rituals. Like, we don't necessarily care if your name is, like, Nancy or Stacy. Mm -hmm. Like, that's that's the least of our concerns. Okay. So, that's what I thought. Yeah, aliases are fine. Well, yes. Uh, Josh mentions the, the rune he found underneath Christian's bed, and Paley just says, like, oh, yeah, it's a love rune. Uh, yeah, it's from Maya. You know, Maya, she's she's the age where she can have sex now. She's been allowed to have sex. Or he uses a term to say, like, oh, last year she received her word. You have it? Um, I don't know how to say it. Ah, uh, okay. B-Y-X-M-Y-N-D-I-G. It's a slang word in Swedish for the age of consent. Okay. Um, which is the age of 15 in Sweden. This actress, however, was like in her 20s. Yep. Okay. Okay. Thank you. 
Mark, you know, is he's just being Mark and pissing on things, as you do. Yeah. Uh, but he made the mistake of pissing on the sacred ancestral tree where the ashes of so many prior generations have been scattered and everyone freaks out about this. Now, on the one hand, nobody explained what the dead tree was to Mark. On the other hand, Mark, go behind, go in the woods, go in a bathroom, which they probably have here. You don't need to piss out in the open next to a tree with everyone watching you. Yeah, it is quite a conspicuous tree. It's just out in the middle of an open field. <laughs> There's no sign yeah, next to it yeah, that says, like, here we honor our dead or anything or, you know, anything roped off. It's just this tree in the middle of the, the, the field. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and this yep. guy comes up just super mad at Mark, oh. saying he's going to kill him for pissing on his ancestors. Put away your ugly dick. <laughs> Because you don't piss on hospitality and you don't piss on the ancestral ashes of a Swedish death cult. And in doing this podcast, we have learned those are the two things you don't piss on. So the two rules. We're going to slowly, over time, we're just going <laughs> to just have this list that grows on the shit that you don't piss on. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so we find out that Simon left early. He left early, quote unquote. Like, where'd Simon go? He's gone. Oh, God damn it, and Connie's really pissed off by this. Yeah, basically at some point, the, the British people, who really have not really been central to this movie up until this point, and never will be, they like, are... seem like they're, they're maybe going to leave. Then we're going to get a cut to them baking meat pies, and you're like, are we eating Simon right now? What's happening to Simon? No, no, we're not eating Simon. Something We'll find out what happened to Simon. That comes later on. There's a hilarious moment where Christian is now speaking to Odd, and they're like, how do jobs work? How blah, blah, blah. And Danny comes up, did you hear that Simon left early? And Christian just says, oh, that's that's really weird. Hey, Odd, how does incest work here? Yeah. <laughs> Asking about the incests. Yeah. So he's slowly becoming a better anthropologist. Mm -hmm. We're seeing Christian develop as an ethnographer right before our <laughs> eyes because he's really done no work on his thesis up until uh -huh. this point. And now he's finally asking some questions. All right. And I respect that. Although incest here is going to be a really important setup. So he does ask what's what's the deal here this is a very insular community this is very remote do you have a problem with diversifying the gene pool at all and this is a legit question that an ethnographer of rural communities would be interested in mm, I've, yeah i've actually done some work myself on isolated genetics and folklore about isolated genetics but the moment here that he's sort of suggesting this or asking about this, we get Father Odd responding that, yes, it is something that they both worry about and embrace at the same time, that occasionally incest is beneficial to this community because inbreeding will result in certain types of people that are unclouded. And so the unclouded, as it were, are going to be more open and receptive to keeping the folk traditions alive. But they are going to sometimes, or they do bring in other outsiders into the community and kind of absorb them in just so that they can kind of keep their gene pool diverse enough. So that is going to set up this idea that they might be looking to bring some outsiders into the community, mm -hmm. that this is important to them. Very important. Yep. This is also like right around the same time that you mentioned. Yes. Josh learns about the, the holy runes or the holy runes written in the book, uh, written by the, did they call him an oracle, I believe, in this movie, where the old, the man with the epic beard, the most glorious beard of all time, explains <laughs> to Josh, like, these are our sacred books, the runes, 
you know, they're on a scale of 16 different levels of holiness. They're written by this boy over here, who is the kid we saw earlier, who was smearing paint in the book and had a very disfigured face. He is unclouded because he's the result of inbreeding. And Josh also says, well, can I take a picture of the book? And the old man just like, no, no, you can't do that. And shuts the book immediately. And he sets a very clear boundary with Josh. No, you cannot take a picture of this, which you would hope Josh would respect and just trying to find a workaround to that. So Josh is going to go to sleep with his shoes on and then he's going to pop right back up and he's going to go take pictures of that book anyway. And he's going to get clubbed in the head by a guy wearing Mark's face. So somehow Mark has died off screen and has now... Mark was yes. Mark was pulled away at a feast that happened right prior to this, and it's also the feast of uh, I call it the feast of blood and pubes, because we have the meat pie being served up that we are told very clearly Maya made herself specifically for Christian. Christian takes a bite, pulls a pube out of his mouth, and also his drink is a little bit more red than everyone else's drink. Which is super great. It's very (laughs) subtle, but also not at all. And this is going to become important because one of the tableaus, those prophetic tableaus that we have seen before, one that they dwell on very carefully is a pictorial depiction of how to make a love potion. And we're going to just have this little picture of a woman who's cutting off some pubic hair and stirring it into a pie and then like menstruating into like a cup and serving it to a fellow who then gets hearts in his eyes and then they're going to marry. And so we know just by this one pubic hair and this slightly redder orange juice, so everybody's drinking orange juice and his is a little bit more blood orange, that he's just gotten the, the love potion thrown on him. He's been marked. No need for number nine when you get it right the first time. And nine is an important sacred number. So oh, there we go. Oh, this is love potion number nine. Yeah, because yeah, nine this is... this is the love potion number nine. Very important number to them. And he does send her some googly eyes uh, after drinking her menstrual blood yes, out of the orange juice. indeed. Uh, and then, yes, night comes, Josh goes, try to take, tries to take some pictures, uh, sees someone wearing Mark's face, hitting the head, goes down. The next day, at another feast, uh, uh, Danny says, has anyone seen Josh? Or Mark and Christian just flat out says, I'm honestly not that concerned. Yeah, well, if he's not yet worried about the community, then it's legit to not be that concerned. Because you're like, where could they have gone? Right? They got to be around here somewhere. We're just showing up for breakfast. They're not around. They're probably somewhere. (laughs) They could be sleeping. And earlier in the movie, Mark says, like, you guys let me sleep through the cliff diving? What the hell? Yeah, he was upset that he didn't get to watch a bunch of old people kill themselves. (laughs) Oh, Mark. Oh, Mark. Marky, Mark, Mark. But this, then, we're going to have the elders start their gaslighting game, or continue their gaslighting game, really. But they're going to come up and just say, our sacred book was stolen last night, and we don't need to know by who. We'll just leave the door open and unlocked, and we'll look the other way, and everything can be okay. So they're setting up this idea of this might be where Josh is gone, he might have stolen their book and absconded with it because he's such an obsessive little researcher that <laughs> he wouldn't take no for an answer. Oh. And this is where their minds go to. And Christian's just going to disown Josh right quick. He's like, I just want you to know that he's not a friend of mine. <laughs> Dick move, bro. Oh, God. Like, well, we'll find this book. We'll get it back for you. And uh. I'm just like, okay, that's great. 
Um, so at any rate, Christian is told, uh, you need to go over there. Lady Civ wants to talk to you. Uh, Danny, you need to go with the other women to get ready for the festivities. And Danny's like, uh, okay, cool. So they go their separate ways. We get some special tea being made. Yeah, I've had something similar to this tea in Finland. There's, I don't know exactly what they're using here, but there's this like special mushroom that grows in the tops of the trees that you kind of go up and you scrape it off hmm. the tree and then you dissolve it in Atex, which is pretty much just pure ethanol. Oh. And <laughs> then just mix it into, I think we mixed it into coffee. It was like, shit it's real. <laughs> <laughs> so this also tracks. Anthropologists will do this. <laughs> well, Danny is a psych student, so this is just another case of her taking drugs that she didn't really want to take in the first place, but... Off we go! We get this, we get uh, a very good example, a very clear example of that special, um, it's kind of like a very quick exhale, quick inhale that everyone uh, in the village does, like the (gasps) sound. Yeah, I don't really know what that's about. Yeah, it's cool no matter what. It is cool, but I I have no folk tidbit for that. (laughs) But they are going to go and prepare for the maypole dance. Yeah, they are. So they erect this giant pole of flowers and describe this idea that... All of the women are going to dance, and they're going to keep dancing, and as they begin to become exhausted and tap out, the last one standing is going to be the May Queen. And this is something that we get cross-culturally with these ideas of dance until you drop. Mm -hmm. They were very popular in the U.S. in the 40s and the 50s. They shoot horses, don't they? Who shoots horses? It's an old movie about a dance marathon. Oh, where it's right. like, go until you drop. Or like the last person standing. I didn't know. There's also a Gilmore Girls episode about it. So for a more contemporary reference. Well, I mean. But either way, yeah, this idea. And then in a lot of Germanic folklore, there's the idea of the devil sort of taking the ones that you, you want to outdance the devil mm. or something. I, I don't remember. But <laughs> that seems to be what they're doing here. They're going to dance until they drop. Well, high on <laughs> the herbs. Good times. In the bright, glaring sun, mm-hmm. and the music's going to be playing this kind of like choral stuff. I have also participated in some maypole dances. They're super fun. They're a bright, happy time. Mm-hmm. They're really not nefarious. Yeah. We get some fiddlers. Yeah, you dance oh, around. That's great. Good. You get some fiddlers. That makes dancing better every single time, no matter what. Yeah. Very true. And yeah, so this is. A fun little folk custom that's still practiced in Scandinavia during midsummer. And it's mostly by kids. It's a very just kind of like ritual thing, kind of like the 4th of July having fireworks, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, it kind of vaguely means something, but it's also just something, you know, to do <laughs> for a day. Nice. And we're going to have Danny be the last woman standing. She wins out. She is the strongest stock. She wins a thing she didn't even know she was competing for, which I find amusing. Yeah, she's like, I just gotta keep dancing. <laughs> Dance with my problems. I also love the bit where she apparently thinks she can, or she can, or she thinks she can speak Swedish suddenly. I, I didn't know if that was actually Swedish that she was speaking with them. Yeah, so I kind of always took this as... Sometimes when you just feel like you're communicating Mm. with everything and stuff just makes sense, even if it doesn't necessarily. My parents love to tease me about this. I had this friend when we were living in the Netherlands and we would talk for hours and I would talk in English and he would talk in Dutch. And my, yeah, my father who doesn't speak any Dutch would ask his, his friend, father of the kid, like, are they actually 
engaging in the same conversation and the dad was like no not at all so <laughs> that's, just, I thought, that's too bad i thought like it was going to be like a han chewy situation there but no no we were, we were on two totally separate topics okay. but we felt like we were communicating right, right? Yeah, okay and so I, I kind of get the sense that that's what they were doing here, but on a drug version instead of like a kit version. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, I understand you. And this is, must be what you're saying back to me. But oh, God. totally separate conversations. Unless she is supernaturally and mystically just becoming more mm-hmm. of this community. Because we do get the sense that the community is slowly engulfing her. So we're going to get these shots throughout that plants are kind of growing into her and around her. She's becoming one with the earth and the land yeah, almost. Yeah, one with the earth and one with this sort of Swedish commune, as it were. Because there are a lot of little foreshadowing things that she might have always belonged here. So we can kind of talk about that in, the, in a wee bit too. So she becomes the May Queen. Meanwhile, Christian is going to get drugged himself again. And he's going to try to resist too for a second. Be like, nah, maybe I shouldn't. They're like, nah, you got to drink it though. He doesn't resist that much. (laughs) So they shove these drugs down him. They give him more drugs in the form of these aerial kind of things. um, These gases that he's going to inhale. He does a great uh, bad trip. Like this actor, Jack Rayner, is doing a really good bad trip acting here. The way that he, how uncomfortable he looks and... Yeah. He's not enjoying himself. No, They're going to strip him down, put him in his little robe that's going to have the rune on it that was on mm-hmm. the sort of bloody rune foreshadowing initially. And then they're going to lead him into a room where young Maya is spread out amongst this egregious bed of flowers and plants surrounded in a semicircle by naked old women. Mm-hmm. Fun choices all around. Yeah. So they are going to kind of dube con him into this sexual situation he looks just so dazed during all this the first time i was watching it he comes in they take off his robe and he just stands there dumbfounded and he has this look in his face as if he's saying oh no i'm I'm getting some mixed signals here guys i don't know if this is quite my scene but (laughs) yeah at some point danny's going to hear the commotion in the barn because these women are all chanting they're moaning mm. together so just like the death whale they seem to have this orgasm whale share the good times and the bad times yeah and so danny's like i think i need to go over to that barn meanwhile her may queen sisters are like yeah that's not for us you shouldn't and danny's <laughs> no. like no nah, i'm going to though and so she runs over the barn looks through the keyhole what we find out later is what she sees is just Christian in a daze, missionary style plowing into this chick as an old lady is like giving him the assist. Yeah, she's like, just hurry it up. Okay, let's let's get she's going. Like pushing on his buttocks there to help the pelvic thrust motion. All of these women are wailing around him, and Danny just freaks out. Right, she's she's not open to the idea that Christian might just be having some fun on vacation. She's not open to the idea that perhaps this guy was just ostensibly roofied and gang raped by a bunch of old ladies. Also on the menu. Also possible. Putting the burden of proof on this guy immediately, man. And uh, yeah, so she's just going to freak out. She's, Once again, since these guys don't talk about their problems ever, she's not going to ask him about it. She's Mm. not going to confront him about it. She's just going to freak out and go somewhere else. And everybody's going to find these bodies at some (laughs) point. So Christian is going to run out of this barn naked oh, just in a stupor. flipping and flopping. It's something you don't see in films very often is a male actor who's ready like, Super okay, pale. I'm running out and I am hanging dong. Yeah, I guess initially in the script, like he was going to put his robe back on, but the actor was <laughs> like, 
Now this happens to women all the time in horror movies. They have to run around naked. I'll do it. And also, I don't think he would have the wherewithal to, to put his robe back on. I yeah, no, I mean, it was a great choice. He's like, no, this is the degradation before death scene. Like, I just have to run around naked. And he's going to find the different bodies of the sacrificial victims. Yes. Josh is buried in a garden. Yeah. Simon has been... T- He's been given the full blood eagle treatment. Yeah. And like they even show the lungs kind of moving a little bit, just leaving it ambiguous. Like, is Simon still alive? Holy shit. Yeah, which is curious. I mean, he wouldn't be because the lungs have detached from the diaphragm. So I don't know how they're inflating. But (laughs) the creep factor prevails. Mm -hmm. So it's fine. You got to have a good creep factor going on there. But yes, the blood eagle is another nice little legendary folk custom of Viking practice in which the ribs are split from the spine and then the lungs are pulled out through the back to create wings. Hmm. This is something that is written about in a couple of sagas, but also like the cliff diving, there is no historical evidence for this ever being an actual Viking practice, Mm -hmm. but movies and TV shows love to use the blood eagle. It is a (laughs) visual. Yeah. Pretty badass. I get it why they like to use it. Mm. But yeah, this is another sort of legend come to life moment. There you go. And uh, Christian, he is is captured. He is uh, given the the stun dust. His eyes close. Someone has to like, we can, it's a very nice POV work where someone has to like reach towards the camera, move their hands down and like we get blackout in one side of the screen, blackout in the other side of the screen. And then darkness for uh, 10 seconds or so. And someone says, Christian, Christian. Then we get light coming back in and someone is clearly pushing his eyelids open. And this woman says, hi, Christian. Hey, it's okay. Uh, You're paralyzed. So you're not going to be able to move or talk. Uh, But besides that, you're good. Yeah, you're chill. Don't worry about it. It's all good. And we have now the final-ish ceremony where we're given more explicit details about what is going down here. Although we also get the cut after that you can't move or talk that indicates that they might have actually been talking to Danny and not Christian. Oh. So both of them are kind of drugged and incapacitated. Yeah, but Danny can move later on, so. Yeah, but not in the moment that she chooses, right? She kind of like looks, but Mm. she doesn't speak. And so there's, she's (laughs) drugged as well. Everybody's on drugs. I I just figured she couldn't move because of that ridiculous giant, you know, wreath, uh, (laughs) gown that they gave her. Yeah, she's slowly going to be covered in more and more flowers. She's up on the stage, and we get this reveal that, yeah, all of the people that we already knew as an audience were dead, are definitely dead. And that so far has amounted to how many bodies is it? Six? Yeah, six bodies so far. Because there are two that have volunteered as tribute, as it were. That uh, are going to go into the barn and die because they need nine sacrifices. Right. This they, and they say that we need the nine sacrifices. Four of them are one, are from us, four from the outside, and then one is either an insider or an outsider chosen by the May Queen. So they already have the four from the out from the inside, which are the two older people who you know jumped earlier in the movie, and then Pele's brother and another member of the of the group, and then the four were Simon Connie from London. Mark and Josh from the States. 
And now they, well, they do a, a giant bingo roll for all the balls of runes. Yeah, so we get a little Shirley Jackson, the lottery filtering in here too, where some random dude we haven't really been introduced to before gets selected. And so she, Danny, gets to choose between the random stranger or her deteriorating relationship boyfriend <laughs> who was just drugged and gang raped uh, but she's gonna assume that he's cheating on her because that's like the really weird uncomfortable narrative here is that he didn't really like if we're gonna have this narrative that you can't consent while drugged and altered like he is not consenting to the sexual activity mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of um, ideas of, like, vindication and vengeance here that I've seen mm-hmm. in a lot of reviews. Like, this woman scorned is getting this vengeance on this dude who's wronged her. And Which... I'm like, he really has just been an early 20-something yeah. douchebag that didn't communicate very well with you. Like, But she's going to pick Christian because yeah. <laughs> she is. Because it uh, turns out yeah. she's just as homicidal as her sister. And so she's going to pick Christian. And at some point earlier, we see... Saw like a bear hanging out in a cage, just like hanging yep. out there on the grass. <laughs> and this poor bear is going to then be reintroduced again, but just like the body of the bear, the skin of the bear. They're going to empty out the bear's internal organs so that yep. they can put Christian in there and sew him into a little bear suit. <laughs> and so this is, yep. of course, going to be a callback to the poor little bear painting that we had the john bauer painting all coming to fruition but it's also has to do with the whole berserker thing so berserkers yeah what what, why are there berserkers showing up what are you talking about berserkers no this is this is just another little nice legendary swedish folklore tidbit or just norse folklore in general from the sagas so berserkers are going to be a word which literally translates to bear shirts And this is another Uh. thing taken from the Norse sagas in which there were these warriors who would go into trance-like frenzies before battle. This is also where we in English get this idea of going berserk. I mean, in America, we get it from the X-Men comics where Wolverine goes into berserker mode. And when he's in that mode, he's so far gone, man. He's just like slashing and slashing as much as he can. So, yeah. These berserkers, when they would go into these trans-like frenzied states in their little bear shirts, there are different types of legends associated with them. There's an array and range, but some of these beliefs and practices include this idea that some of them might actually physically transform a little bit, sometimes even transform into bear-like individuals. Another really fun belief is that when they were in berserker, full trance, frenzied form, that they might be immune to fire. And that's cool, because we're going to stuff them into this bear suit, and then we're going to put them in a fire. We also get this in The Wicker Man, but that also is a discussion for a different day, which we really should have, because (laughs) Nick Cage punching people in bear suits is just perfection. But here... Christian's not going to punch anybody because he's just put into a bear suit. We also get this idea that in the sagas and traditional ritual belief practices that the berserkers would be sewn into bear skins for burial. So we also seem to be pulling on that tradition a little bit too. So really all around, this is another just vague berserker tradition referenced here like we've had throughout the film. Mm. So it, it's kind of cool. I don't really know what that means in terms for Christian to be given this type of uh, burial. I just like that you're admitting you don't know what it means, but you do need to talk about it. 
That is emblematic of so many things that happen here. Yes. I, I have no defense for that. There's this is facts and annotations. I I have no analysis here. No, I mean if anything, it might validate a little bit your crazy conspiracy theory that Christian is Maya's brother and belongs in this community has been given this berserker burial. I don't know. I, I don't like go. to validate you though, so I should probably take that back. But you can validate incest though, right? I can validate incest. Thank you. The, I'll give you an out there. You know, that's that's one for free. Okay, I'll, I'll take it. Okay, great. I can't I can't bear much more of this talk. We're going to gather up all of the bodies. Christian's still alive, as are the two voluntary sacrifices from the community, into the sacrificial barn that has a bunch of straw and it has a bunch of runes on the inside that are the runes for gift. And they're going to put all the bodies around. And the elders are going to come into the two that are voluntary sacrifices mm-hmm. and give them some you. That's Y-E-W, to try to allow them to feel no pain and feel no fear is what they kind of tell them before they administer this. And then they set the thing on fire. Christian's going to burn. He's going to go up in flames. Another interesting foreshadowing thing is that we have the bear picture also in the tableau burning. And Mm -hmm. now we realize that this is what that was in reference to. Yeah. And the two little voluntary sacrifices they are clearly going to show fear and pain. Yeah. And so that's kind of a fun little add, too, in this way of possibly insinuating that the beliefs that are upheld by this community might not be as ironclad or as true <laughs> as they are in reality. So they think, like, oh, if I eat of this you uh. bark, then I will f- neither feel nor pain nor fear as I enter bravely into the great halls of Valhalla or, like, wherever the fuck they're going. Um, but no, cl- clearly getting burned to death. Yeah. Hurts. As the thing begins to burn, I do love there's a close up on Christian's face, and he has just this look on him, look in his eyes, just seems to say, I "Feel like I made some mistakes along the way here." I've uh, made a huge mistake. What, what What happened to get me here? I should reflect on that. He's like, I really should have broken up with this bitch. <laughs> I could have. Mark was right. I should have listened to Mark. Yeah. Follow Mark. your intuition, guys. <laughs> follow, follow Mark. If Mark you're like, was, this bitch is bad news. She's going to bring me down. Mark like, was yeah. saying I could have been out there getting bitches pregnant, and I didn't listen. Damn it all. I mean, technically, it does seem like he might have gotten a bitch pregnant. Well, that's Maya true. in the so, barn. Yes. So that comes full circle. Like, he did impregnate a woman <laughs> in Sweden before his imminent uh, embryo demise. Embryo demise, yes. The the med, the volunteers, they begin to scream in pain, and everyone around them begins to scream and share in the pain, as we discussed earlier. Though, I don't know if to me there's this, there's something about this scene that is less sharing the pain, because they can't. They're not on fire. The other guys are on fire. Everyone else just shouting. I almost felt like this is a, a way to shout over the the reality that this is like you just said and not an ironclad perfect system and this is just one way of covering that up but who knows yeah i mean it can be a little both mm-hmm. and so yeah we're gonna get this ending shot on danny's crazy crazy eyes <laughs> she watches shit burn and a crown of flowers. For the last, like, 25 minutes of the movie, anytime we see Danny, she's silent and just frowning and pissed off. But the last shot of her is just beginning to smile as the world burns around her. Yeah, another bitch just wants to see the world burn. <laughs> it is curious also that, yeah, our main 
two characters, Danny and I think Christian as well, I don't think they have any dialogue for like the final half hour of the movie. They do not. I think after Danny, the last thing Danny says is, I need to go check out what's happening in that building over there. And from then on out, it's just guttural sounds from her. And I don't think Christian's, the last thing Christian says when he's on his bad trip, he asks an old man at the dinner, Sir, what what is going on? And this old man just like claps in his face really loud. And because he's having a bad trip, that is not a good sound to him. And that just silences him. And I don't think he says anything else the rest of the movie. Yeah. So there you go. So uplifting. <laughs> Credits roll and we get an ironically happy song. What song do we get? I forget what it is, but it's like just kind of a peppy little thing. Uh, it kind of reminded me of At the End of the Lighthouse, which is also another movie that uh, A24 released. After we have the main character being eaten Promethean style by seagulls, we then get like this jaunty, you know, sea, sea shanty. Yeah, sea shanty. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. This should have been a want to marry a lighthouse keeper, but whatever. Uh. <laughs> so, yeah, this film, this film. If one can call it a film, you can. Oh, we do, but, though. It's, yeah. Like I said, it's gorgeously shot. It just has... So there are ways in which this film becomes a little bit more palatable for a lot of people. And one of those ways is to really think of this film as a fairy tale in some ways. And Astor has commented on this film as a type of surrealist cinema or theater of cruelty type of fairy tale where you have an orphan... So somebody's orphaned at the beginning. That tends to be fairy tale heroine 101. And she goes on a journey and she encounters a bunch of just really crazy stuff. And the things work in this dreamscape fairy tale logic in a way that only fairy tales really work logistically in terms of, oh, well, I can transform my lover into a bear and set him on fire <laughs> if he displeases <laughs> me. Has a, a certain... Yeah, quasi-fairy tale logic and it doesn't really fully work out in our own justice system, but whatever. This movie also is funny in some ways, kind of like The Lighthouse, where there's a dark comedic element to mm -hmm. it, even among all the horror. So the horror parts are certainly yeah. the grief and the selfishness that all of these characters are incredibly selfish people, that you have... Christian, who's very selfish to, I mean, to a point he actually does try to kind of like, no, I have to stick with her. But he also sticks with her because he doesn't want to make it awkward for him either. And so there's that selfishness. We've got Danny, who isn't meeting um, Christian's needs either, right? She's very self-focused on her own trauma. Her own problems does not have any thought or care to anybody else's. And she is at the height of trauma in this. So that's understandable, but it's also very, very self-focused. And then we have this community that's incredibly selfish in the way that they have their rituals and they want to ensure the continuation of their tradition. And they're not going to think about other people in this equation at all. They're going to do what they need to do in order to ensure that happens. So it's just a collection of incredibly selfish needs. Even Josh, who just really wants to get the best dissertation he possibly can and is going to ignore the rules of the community <laughs> to do it, like, yeah, I think like every character's motivation is entirely selfish and there's a certain sort of uncomfortable horror in that as well as just what happens when people just think about themselves. 
Terry also being an incredibly selfish character that takes herself and her parents out of the equation without thinking of the ramifications of that for others. So, yeah, just horrible people all around. And I think you're a selfish, horrible person for making me watch this movie. So, yeah, the thematically it all works. Yeah, there's that too. But there's also <laughs> this weird, dark comedy element to it. And that's actually, apparently, when I did some research on this, how it's largely been received in Sweden is as a dark comedy. Oh, nice. So the audience, the testing audiences in Sweden largely laughed through this film, most of it. Probably not the beginning, but, you know. God, I would have loved to have been in that theater. (laughs) Yeah, the community sort of thing. It is also worth noting that... Ari Aster did not come up with the concept of this film on his own. He was actually approached by a Swedish production company to create this film. Ari Aster, in interviews, has mentioned that he was looking for a new film to do after Heredity, knew he wanted to do a breakup film, but couldn't find an interesting angle in. And then it was a Swedish production company that approached him after seeing Heredity and asked him to do a folk horror film set in Sweden. So, hence Midsummer. So, this is by Swedish design in and of itself in the first place. Which is curious. Although, side note, not actually shot in Sweden. I think all of the principal photography of this film, if not most of it, was shot in Hungary. And you can kind of tell that a little bit. The trees are a little bit different at that latitude line than they are in Sweden, but they did a really nice job of making Hungary look like Sweden. So it's fine. I'm going to allow it. Once again, I'm going to allow it. Anyway, so we can ask, all right, well, where is, where might the comedy in this B. And this has to do a little bit with some Swedish politics really? in a certain way. Okay. Let's see where my Where are my where notes are on this. You ever? So this goes back to Ruben a little bit, our inbred, unclouded receiver, and how he is this community's representation in a way of the dogmatic commitment to the pure old ways traditions that in order to continue to get this pure unclouded vision there's this inbreeding of genetic communal purity and they're keeping their genetics tight they're keeping their traditions sacred and closed off and This has been linked in some ways to this whole community that spins off from this ideology to the rapid rise and return of the alt-right or the far-right party in Sweden that's happening over the last couple of years. And in a way that a lot of globally we're seeing this return in some ways to fear and xenophobia and conservatism. There is a party in Sweden called the Sweden Democrats. And the Sweden Democrats, founded in 1988, is a social conservative party based on nationalism. And it is the party that's first and foremost associated with the issue of migration. And they believe that Sweden's immigration policy has been too generous, that too many immigrants are coming into Sweden, and Mm. that they want to keep pure the traditions and yeah the ways Mm -hmm. and 
to a certain extent also the genetics of the Swedish people. Uh, when this party was founded, it was founded by a lot of neo-Nazi ideology. Yeah, like okay. that's not a secret. Mm-hmm. Because you actually had this debate in the mid-90s that came out among the Sweden Democrats as to whether or not the central thesis of the party should begin more on or be sort of situated more on ethnic purity and the preservation of Swedish DNA um, or if it should be more focused on the preservation of national culture and identity, in which case... Immigration is fine. This term, the meatball patriot, came about because this idea that immigration is fine as long as they come into the country and assimilate and eat meatballs. And yeah, we have here then in this insular Swedish community a potentially dark comedic representation of this Sweden democratic nationalist preservation ideology with this group of individuals that at Mm -hmm. all costs are going to preserve the old ways and the old tradition. And so why people from Sweden can watch this movie and not think that it's attacking all Swedes, right? It's kind of equivalent to a lot of the backwoods, insular, rural American horror movies that we have, right? Americans love to watch those and they don't think like this is America. They think this is rural backwoods America. Mm -hmm. And there's some sort of dark comedy in that representation of backwoods insular communities. There can be some very damaging things that come to that too in terms of the fear that that spreads on the flip side about isolated and rural places and farmlands because they're not all nationalist serial killers, but... I mean, just going back to the 70s, there were definitely a lot of rural communities that were otherwise nice places, but were ultimately harmed in big ways by Deliverance, the movie. Yeah, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why rural communities were harmed in the 70s other than just cinema, but... But they didn't help. Uh, yeah, it didn't help things. So nobody's saying that necessarily it's always great to, to poke fun at rural isolated communities. But why this opened up in Sweden as a dark comedy is because it was received as satirically making fun of this certain mindset mm-hmm. that is on the rise right now or a return mon- mindset that's on the rise to the preservation of tradition at all costs. Yeah. And that is kind of what this community does, right? And they also have the flip side of the argument there where they're also still open to occasional outsiders in the community as long as they assimilate, right? As long as they eat those Mm. meatballs because Danny has been fully assimilated into this community by the end of it. So we have the sacrifices to purify the bloodlines and then we also have the assimilation angle. So it's a little bit of both. So Mm -hmm. they're, they're covering the base of the Sweden Democratic Party. What do you think of Danny's assimilation? Yeah, clocks. But what were you gonna say? It looked like you were. No, about no, to I didn't. No, I, I had nothing else to add there. I have nothing else I can add on on that level of detail. Obviously, uh, this movie does definitely remind me a lot of The Wicker Man. I think the big difference is that we just you have a main character who's alive at the end of it, as opposed to The Wicker Man, where our main character is burned alive. So it's basically like Wicker Man, except if Nicolas Cage like had a girlfriend that he brought with him onto the. Uh, on the whole thing, and she's just like, you know what, I I get these crazy women uh, and and their honey and the need for bees, so yeah, you gotta burn. Yeah, it seems like Nick Cage had already 
taken that step because his ex already had assimilated into the Summer Isle community. (laughs) (laughs) So they just did it backwards. That's interesting, too. And the original doesn't even have like a a love interest for the main character. It's it's interesting. The, The original is much more working off of prophecy. So it has like a lot of similarities to this, where at the very end, I believe Christopher Lee's character explains that they need to sacrifice someone who comes with authority, uh, with good intent, and is a virgin. Uh, because it's explained that a main character, he's a very Catholic man and has doesn't believe in sex before marriage. And so you have a lot of scenes of like women trying to seduce him and him freaking out like, oh, no, get away from me. And sexy dances with Brett Eklund. It's, it's, it's a good movie. What can I say? Uh, but that, I think, has more in common with this movie. I forget exactly why they're choosing to burn Nicolas Cage alive at the end of the movie aside from him just them not liking him <laughs> because they they need a sacrifice to me this movie actually reads the most interesting as the genesis and progression of how somebody eventually joins a death cult because we have Danny and we see her go through all of those steps where she suffers great loss, she's in a period of grief, she's vulnerable, she doesn't seem to have a great support network, and Pele picks up on this. It's like, I'm really glad you're coming. <laughs> like, come to this community. <sighs> and once she's there, she's embraced by people, this kind of different sisterhood stuff that she goes through with the ones that will join her in wailing while when she finds Christian in the group sex situation Mm -hmm. and she runs into the room and these women are sort of supporting her. And it's just these little things that slowly build and like Pele kind of showing interest in her, like they are providing her a new support structure and a home in this new space to a girl that really has no permanent ties left to Mm. the home she came from. Prime candidate right there. Yeah. Yeah, and then they crown her their queen, right? Like, they embrace her as potentially one of them. And there's even when they crown her, some other character is like, you're one of us now, you know? And so, like, they, yeah, they provide her a platform to enact vengeance through all the rage and betrayal that she's feeling. And they're they're like, yeah, no, that's, that's totally an ethically sound decision. We support this, right? We're, we're giving you a chance to be the May Queen scorned, and we're, we're going to burn this bitch for you. And it, it's very interesting to me then on, like, that psychological level. So as a psych student, really, she should have been doing her dissertation here, too, but that's fine. <laughs> but the way in which, yeah, they just kind of break her down and then build her back up, and it's like, this is... This is how this cult stays alive, right? This is how they get new members. And it's just a, it's a journey into cultdom. And we get, like, Waco and uh, Heaven's Gate references and stuff throughout the movie, oh, too. Yeah. Like, you have different characters that, like, verbally mention those things. So you're like, yeah, no, there's there's some stuff happening. <sighs> and that was London's dissertation uh, in, in verbal form. For everyone, yeah. for everyone involved. Not at all, though. <laughs> this is not my, not my area within the, the anthro field. I've got... Tons more stuff. What do you got? Uh, I have a little bit. My personal headcanon for this movie, I mentioned this earlier, involves Christian and Maya, uh, the woman who he's non-conned into having sex with towards the end of the movie. To me, uh, we don't know anything about Christian's background. That's why, to me, he is, this is his long-lost sister and that he has been brought in to make another oracle. Uh-huh. Earlier in the movie, 
Pele says that Maya is his sister, but she doesn't really look that much like Pele. She has red hair and, and blue eyes, as does Christian. She looks kind of similar to him. And then when they are having sex, we have this brief cutaway shot of the Oracle like laying on his bed watching them and kind of eyes tearing up a little bit as if he's like watching his replacement start to happen. So that's my own personal thing. And I, I like how Maya, after they're done having sex, Maya just immediately knows like she kind of brings her, her knees, her, her knees up a little bit and like is rocking back and forth, which as the big Lebowski taught us is a method to encourage fertilization. We all know, learn that from that important movie. The only reason we know that. Yes. Yeah, and she just says, I can feel it, I can feel the baby, and, I mean, if you know your stats, you're like, well, odds are one out of five you can actually feel that. Uh, you may want to keep Christian around for another go or two if you really want this, this kid to happen. This is a magically enhanced community, so that's the other <laughs> thing, too, it depends on the extent to which this is a non-con situation and other things, really depends on how supernatural this environment really is, like, if this love potion worked, right, that's mm -hmm. that's even more troubling because yeah. he didn't have a chance to begin with. He was targeted, he was groomed, mm -hmm. and then broke Because one way or the other, he was definitely drugged prior to the act, but he might have been drugged even before on a supernatural level, Yeah, which is kind of interesting. So she might be able to get pregnant quicker if there's some supernatural stuff involved, but <laughs> I don't know if there is or not. If it works, it works. So, yeah. Because that's like the folklore way is whether or not these things are real or not. It's like the lighthouse. Maybe weird shit's happening. Maybe it's just a bunch of people that mm, yeah. think supernatural stuff is happening, but at the very end realize that it's just ritual for ritual's sake. Because we're never given a reason as to why they need nine sacrifices, right? It's just something they do. Yeah, just, well, we, we don't know who wrote the rules, but we're going to go by them. What choice do we have? It's like, we're going to follow these rules. And so when you see ritualistic participation from the outside, it can look a little odd, but then you realize that every culture has ritualistic participations mm. that are it's all true. odd in a counter way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the sign that was pinned from before has the area of Sweden that they're going into, which is Helsingland, which is an actual province in Sweden. The town commune itself is fictitious, but the area is real. And it looks just like this ordinary greeting sign, but underneath it, you have this message that says stop mass migration vote for free north this fall and so that gets into the sort of dark satirical commentary of yeah the sweden democrats of this opposing mass migration and this community itself also is opposing that mass migration into the area and helsingland is also known it's not necessarily known specifically for being a part of that political party they are known for the farms that are up there and the architecture and art that are in the buildings on the farms. Mm. So the art that we see throughout the buildings, throughout the movie, are heavily based on these actual farmhouses in the area. They're a UNESCO kind of preserved thing now. And they're beautiful. They had a lot of transient artists that would come through and paint on the walls. And they kind of have this like Bosch sort of style to them, these 
tableaus that are crazy. And in this movie specifically, they also bring in a little, a lot of like Hilma of Klint art, who was a Swedish spiritualist painter of abstract art. And what's really cool about her stuff is she was a, a practicing spiritualist, so believed that the spirits were talking to her through paintings, which is what we see Ruben as a character doing as well, uh, right? This idea of uncloudedness, okay. that mm-hmm. the messages from spirits could ch- be channeled through art. And she would do these really colorful, abstract stuff. And unfortunately, this is not a visual medium as an audio podcast. But (laughs) if you look it up, I think there are people that have probably done some side-by-side comparisons. But there are certain Helma off Clint paintings that they then reproduce through certain shots. So she's got a couple that have these like crazy circles um, on this very cool kind of like greenish blue background. And then when they do an aerial shot of the maypole dance, they have those circles lined up in the same way that they are on the like the Uffklint paintings. And they do that a couple of times, very deliberately recapture shots from Swedish folk artists and incorporate them into the film, which is just so cool. Like the attention to detail that's not necessary is kind of amazing. So, yeah. All right. Top five. My number five is Josh, played by William Jackson Harper, our anthropologist. I just really liked this character. I liked it's a smaller part, but I really liked what uh, Harper was doing with it. A few things I've seen, I've seen him in, always enjoyed him. So I want to give a shout out to him. I thought he did a really good job in uh, what little material he was given to work with. Yeah, number five, Josh. He's the one true anthropologist. All right. He's the character that should have survived. It's been a great different movie. Ah, oh, I know that. Uh... May Queen, May Queen Josh. <laughs> True. My number four is the sacred tapestry of foreshadowing. Just because when we see that thing, I love the progression that it goes through. And it's just this progression of like, oh, what a cute pastoral scene this is. Like, oh, this woman is a lover. Oh, she likes this one guy. And uh, oh, are those... What is she... Oh, oh. Okay, that's what we're doing. Cool. I just love, uh, you know, little moments like that in a film that take you on that journey or... They're very precious. Yes, making it easy because number four at the art department. Well, all right, there you go. <laughs> the people are reproducing that art. Just, uh, and as you've spoken in great detail, they did one hell of a job and had a lot of, of good, deep content to work with. My number three is Mark because he's the one honest character in the movie. Mark, <laughs> he just tells it like it is, okay? If, if Mark wants to have some meatballs in a sex club, He's just going to tell you, and you know where Mark stands all the time. And he just presents his punchable face to you, you know, unfiltered for all the world to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, Ari Aster, the director. Right on. I think both of his films have been very technically interesting. I love how much effort that he puts in with all of the little details. I don't like the way that these films make me feel, but I respect his craft, which means they've got to be pretty good Mm -hmm. if I'm not just like, I hate it. (laughs) My number two is Florence Pugh. The term powerhouse performance is like almost a cliche, but I really do think that's what this is for her. I mean, she is just going so hard on some scenes and which do call for it. And it's definitely not overacting. And it was just fascinating to watch her in this because the only thing I had seen her in besides this was Little Women. Mm-hmm. And I had heard, I read some interview with her where she said she wanted to do Little Women uh, as a fun movie after doing Midsommar, 
midsummer or whatever, <laughs> just to do something a little bit easier. You're like, yeah, yeah, a little difference. A little different. Yeah. You got one movie where she's having an existential crisis after some murder-suicide and choosing the death of a lover. And the other movie, she's making molds of her foot to show what dainty feet she has for, <laughs> for her girlhood crush. Oh, it's a fun little thing there. And yes, I just really love, I love Greta Gerwig's Little Women a whole lot. So it was really fun to watch her in this starkly different film. Fair enough. Uh, no, she did do a, a good job, but mm-hmm. the character, yeah. such a drag, man, such a drag. What I think we're learning now from this podcast is I basically am like an early 20-something-year-old dude like Christian where I'm like, man, this chick's a drag. <laughs> like, I was like, she's going through some really serious stuff. Nah, man, gotta, gotta cut her out. Like, <laughs> fuck that bitch, man. Um, all right, so then my number two is the the set designer and whoever built those goddamn beautiful buildings <laughs> god they were gorgeous the yeah. architecture in those i cannot stress enough is yeah it's a really cool mix of like scandinavian rococo but then also some of a little bit of hints of indigenous sami architecture the way that they incorporate sharp angles and this homage to the sun it's yeah, the buildings are just gorgeous, and each one is very unique, and they, they just work. They just work so well. All right. My number one. I mean, it should be a little obvious here, uh, but my number one is Ikea. Ikea, hey, I was joking earlier. You're not... No, you're not evil. What are you... T- no, Ikea, we love you. Thank you for, for supplying the furniture for this movie. It's, it's all good. We're, we're cool. Obviously, the number one is the cinematographer. Bitch, please. <laughs> Bitch, please. Super talented guy. And they just have some of the coolest, unique shots. And, yeah, the light temperatures in this are wonderful. Yeah, this, I think we can both agree on that. The The work here is amazing. Filming, uh, this is obviously filmed digitally, as most things are these days. And filming in broad daylight digitally, you would not think is... You were thinking, like, oh, well, you just have the sun that's a con- as a constant source of light. So, yeah, filming is easy. Actually, filming outdoors on digital film cameras in broad daylight is a little tricky because modern digital cameras are super sensitive to light and can easily blow out your highlight, which is to say, like, the brightest, you know, parts of the screen that are getting light. And so to balance that as well as this movie does, does require a little bit of effort. So props to them. Mm-hmm. So the cinematographer is a man named Pawel Pogozelski. I'm sorry if I completely butchered that because I probably did. But the really interesting thing about him is that... So first we'll say Ari Aster has done only two feature-length films and then a series of shorts. And with the exception of three shorts, Aster has used Powell as a cinematographer on every single thing he's done. So mm-hmm. his shorts and both the main films. So this is also the cinematographer from Heredity. And this includes the very first thing that Ari Aster ever did, mm. which was a short film called The Strange Thing About the Johnsons in 2011. So I don't know when or how these two men met, but it does seem like they both met very early on in their cinema careers and that Ari Aster has 
cultivated his eye or his lens aesthetic through the use of this one particular cinematographer. And they, they do work really well together, so hopefully he will continue to use him in all of his future things. All right. So yeah, this film is just overall a very technically gorgeous piece of cinema. It is technically very satisfying to watch, even with all of the horror and the grief and whatever other emotions are happening here on the screen. It is technically gorgeous. They also filmed this, not only filmed this incredibly fast, so we've talked before about films that film super, super quickly. Yeah. But the full production time on this film, I think I have the, uh, I wrote it down because I was like, Jesus. So it was greenlit on May 18th of 2018. Okay. And it premiered on June 18th, 2019. 13 months. This film was greenlit, Mm -hmm. (laughs) pre-produced, like... They had all their pre-meetings, there was yeah. cast, it was, yeah, organized, it was shot, it was edited, and it was in theaters. Wow. 13 months. Yeah, that I mean, that might sound, if you're not familiar with film production, that might sound like a long time, but that, that for a film of this, it's two and a half hour film, involves a lot of people, a lot of coordination on filming and complicated camera movements and techniques. Yeah, that's a pretty quick production time. Yeah, so it's an impressive yeah, second thing all around. I'm curious to see what he does next. We shall see. But I think we've spent enough time out in the country. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's about time we, we go searching for something a little bit more metropolitan. Some loving had me a blast.
Been corrupted by capitalism. Space! <laughs> <laughs> 